You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. As you know, we've been in the book of First Timothy, but I, I thought we would go today to the book of Third Timothy. Uh, Third Timothy, yeah. And uh, we get a picture up there of the author of the book of Third Timothy. Um, oh, who said there isn't a book of Third Timothy? Oh, right, okay, over here. Um, well, we're about to see that there might well be. Uh, maybe we've got a problem with the PowerPoint. Ah, uh, back one. There he is. Yeah. <laughs> That's our, our, our own Timothy Sharp. Um, has been awarded, and this is a little bit late in coming, Timothy, but uh, I got postponed a couple of times, so... Um, very um, c- congratulations on winning this very special title. Young Christian Writer of the Year 2015 and, uh, r- uh, for a Christian fiction. That's the Australian, you know, the whole of the nation. So the Lord has given you a talent, Timothy, and may, the, may he bless it and may you use it for his glory. And it's a, ple- a pleasure and a privilege to have you as part of our group. God bless you. Okay, back to First Timothy now. <laughs> uh, you all thought I was uh, on the heresy trail there, didn't you? <laughs> no. Well, um, you might decide that afterwards. Um, we're going to look at uh, something very comp- uh, controversial today. This is a massive topic, and uh, I know that 30 or 40 minutes will not deal with this subject you know, in its entirety. It's uh, a huge subject. And, you know, um, I was supposed to be speaking on this almost two months ago. And for one reason or another, I get kept putting back for very legitimate reasons. And I realize now why, because I had to study more than I thought I had to. And uh, I had to do a lot of study for this. This is um, a, a deep and controversial subject. And I've wrestled with this more than any other one, I think. And... Um, I've had various influences on my life that have fed into the way I think, just like you have had various influences on the way you think. But what I want us to do this morning is to call the Scriptures into being our referee as to where we should stand on this uh, subject. And um, it has, it's a subject that has really come into its own in the last 60 years or so. Um, before that, it was pretty much... Um, the portion that we're about to read was pretty much taken as read throughout the whole of Christendom, apart from a couple of exceptions. Um, the first ones to kind of deviate from it in any uh, firm way were the Quakers. Um, have you heard of the Quakers? They're the ones who make the porridge uh, oats. Um, but more than that, they make a more important thing than porridge. They make chocolate. Cadbury's uh, and round trees and fries, they were all Quakers. And... Um, then, of course, there was the Salvation Army. They were a more recent uh, denomination that began to um, give women uh, preaching roles and leadership roles in their organizations. So, uh, Wayne Grudem says, I've taken a lot of what I have here from Wayne Grudem today. He's a Christian theologian who's written a systematic theology. Um, he says, controversy is never easy, but God in his grace often allows controversies to bring us to a deeper understanding of his word and a deeper love and a trust for him. So let, let that be the spirit in which we look at this this morning. And I want to hide behind the scriptures 
I'm hiding behind a pulpit now, but it's very skinny. But I want to, I want to hide behind the scriptures today. I don't want to be putting out um, just what my ideas are. I want to have a serious look at what the scriptures are saying. And I'm aware that what will be read and what may be spoken has the potential to offend you today. But I, that is not the spirit in which I bring this talk to you this morning. So please accept no offense from me because none will be given. <laughs> and uh, just allow the scriptures to speak. And um, we want to look at a wide variety of scriptures and especially the creation order uh, that Paul refers to in this text. So without further ado, we'll read the text. And uh, it's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. And it should be up there for you. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Amen. This is the Lord's word. May he bless it to us. And um, you, can, you can see from this passage that it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a, a difficult exposition. So... What are we supposed to make of it, really? Um, because it conflicts so markedly and so strikingly with what prevalent thought is today. Secular thought and indeed even in the church thought. Many younger folk may not be aware of the changes that have taken place over the last 50 years in society. Um, or maybe you are aware, but you haven't felt the changes. Some of you older people have felt the changes. And I'm probably getting into the bracket where I can feel the changes. And... Um, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, what has caused this great shift in thinking, both secular and Christian? What are the forces behind this shift in thinking that have taken place over the last number of years that have brought us right up to this present state in time uh, where we find ourselves um, putting women on the front line in war? That's where it's gotten to. So let's, let's just have a look and see where they come. Um, because we need to ask that question in case it's not the scriptures that are informing our uh, current thinking. Because there are other hot potatoes, other major issues out there in the world today which are being informed by secular thought which may actually carry the church to a place where she's never meant to be. Because, um, you know, there's a scientific law, it's the second law of thermodynamics, which says everything in nature tends towards the lowest state of energy. And the church is the same. And so we, if we don't stand by the word of God and the scriptures, we are going to end up away, far away from where we're supposed to be. So we have to ask that question. Is there a source of thought and influence that's feeding into our understanding of church order today? that's outside of the scriptures and contrary to the scriptures. So we'll, we'll see that. Now before we go on, um, I want to outline for us the three understandings of the authority and status of the sexes in the church today. The first one is the patriarchal, the second one is the complementarian, and the third is the egalitarian. And I'll read out what they believe. First is patriarchal, and I won't spend any time on this really at all, because uh, it's a very much a minority view uh, that has almost entirely gone from the church in general. When I talk about the church, I talk about Christendom, way out there, right across the spectrum, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, 
Protestantism, Pentecostalism, and so on. Um, it really has more to do with the, how things turned out after the fall rather than what they were like before the fall. And in it, the man, the male, is dominant in everything. And it's basically total responsibility rather than primary responsibility. That's patriarchal understanding. So we'll, not, we'll just mention it and pass over it. I, th- I don't think we'll spend time on that. Complementarian is the middle view, and that one has to do uh, with the following. That men and women have different but complementary roles and responsibilities in marriage, family life, religious leadership, and elsewhere. And I took that definition from Wikipedia. Um, So whether you consider that authoritative or not, it's pretty much exactly what it is. Uh, uh, It's the view that male and female are equal in personhood and dignity and value. And I'm sure no one would disagree with that. But that there are some very clear differences in functions and roles. And that's the complementary view, that God made us uh, for each other. And then there's the egalitarian view. Anybody who speaks French will know that word. Uh, It's really um, equality. It's the view, and I took this from Wikipedia also, just to be fair. It holds that all people are equal before God and in Christ, have equal responsibility to use their gifts and obey their calling to the glory of God and are called to roles and ministries without regard to class, gender, or race. So that's the fair enough view, I would say, of what egalitarian is. It's the view that male and female are equal in personhood, dignity and value, and functions and roles. So that, that, there's a slight difference there, but a very big difference. Slight difference in definition, but a very big difference in working out. So just before we go on, I would just like to mention something that Dr. Greg Forbes mentioned when he was here two months ago. Uh, he came to speak on this very subject. And... Um, he mentioned the idea of a cannon within a cannon. Now, that's not a gun within a gun, okay? That's uh, dividing the Bible, the canon of Scripture. We understand as evangelical Protestants that the canon is 66 books, right? So a canon within a canon is to divide up those 66 into very important authoritative books, lesser important authoritative books, and non-authoritative books, something like that, so that it's got varying degrees of authority. Um, Sometimes we do that. You know, if you've got a red-letter edition of the Bible, that's a kind of a canon within a canon. So we had a, a, a lecturer in our Bible college in Belfast called Reverend Ray Porter, and he didn't like those red-letter editions. He said, give me that. I'll run it through the photocopier. <laughs> and it would come out black then. Um, because he says it's all the Word of God. Okay? So that's what we're getting at here today. Um, we're going from a position of understanding that the 66 books are the word of God. As Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine. But, you know, while I don't like the idea of a canon within a canon, I find it objectionable. Privately and in secret, sometimes I like some verses better than others. How many people are in that camp? <laughs> yeah, so we all privately have a little bit of a canon within a canon. So, we have to try and set that aside. So Greg Forbes said, we have to play a full hand of cards. He must like an odd game of poker. Um, so we have to go all through the scripture to um, back up what we're saying and not just a couple of proof texts. Now, it's impossible for us to do that this morning because of time, but we'll try our best. And I just want to, um, 
Before I go broader, I want to read a scripture which is very similar to the one I've already read, and that's in 1 Corinthians 14, 33 to 35. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 to 35. And it says this, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is, a disgraceful, it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Wow. What are we supposed to do with that? That is, sounds like an absolute ban on any utterance from any woman in the church. That's what that sounds like, doesn't it? If we didn't have any other scripture, that's what that would sound like. What approach must we take to this? Now, I think as we look at uh, the denominations in Christendom again all around the world, I don't believe there is one, I don't know of any, put it that way, there could be, uh, that bans women from speaking in the churches in absolute entirety. Does anybody know of any? I don't know of any. So how in the world did the congregations of God's people come to the place where they allow women to speak in churches and make noise? Um, well, I think it's because there never was a total ban on women speaking in church. There never was. And how do we know that? Well, we go to the scripture again. And um, I'll, I'll deal with that a little bit later. But there are scriptures that show that women have spoken and speak and utter verbal sounds in the church. But let's go back to creation order. That's where we want to start today. And this is in keeping with the full hand of cards as much as possible. We now go back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 where we have the creation of man and woman and the fall. And that has a lot to speak into almost every cardinal doctrine of the church. If we miss what's said there, then we go right off course altogether. So um, Paul does that in this portion of scripture. He goes right back to the Genesis record. And that's where we're going now. Verse 13 says... For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So Paul gives two reasons for his prohibition on women leading and teaching in church. Now, just before I go any farther, to make it clear, this is not about women in ministry at all, okay? It's not about women in ministry. The, uh, women in ministry is, if we didn't have women in ministry, forget the church, put it that way, right? We're talking about two things, leadership and teaching over a man. That's what we're dealing with this morning. So Paul gives two reasons for his prohibition on women leading and teaching men. Firstly, there is heavy emphasis on this order of creation. Man was formed first and woman second. And this is the pre-fall reason that Paul gives. Then he goes and gives a second reason, and it's a post-fall reason. Secondly, the woman was the one deceived by Satan and thus became a sinner. Yet having said this, who was responsible for the sin of man? Primarily. Who was responsible for the sin of man? Primarily. Adam was. And Paul says that in Romans. He said, as in Adam all sinned. So how come Eve sinned first yet Adam was held responsible? That's because he was primarily responsible. Because that's the order that God ordained. John Piper uh, explains it this way. 
He said the fall happened because man and woman switched roles. And the first onslaught of the devil against humanity was to cause the woman to switch her role. And he did a nasty thing. He went straight to the colonel instead of the general. Now, in a, in a, a military situation, you don't do that. You go to the general first. The, he's the one who orders. And uh, this is a quote from John Piper. Both man and woman are imperiled when both forsake the God-given roles that God has given them. Godly, holy, spirit-filled men should bear the responsibility of leading the church. Now, what did Eve do? She switched roles with Adam. She dealt with the devil when Adam should have been dealing with the devil. What did Adam do? He led her. So he failed, and Eve failed, and thus, altogether, we failed. But Adam was held responsible. The deceiver lured Eve away, and Adam coalesced. So let's, let's recap on that. Satan bypasses man's authority and goes directly to Eve. Eve switched roles with Adam. Adam allowed it. Satan deceives Eve and they both fall. But listen what God does. He maintains the original intended order by going to Adam directly as the leader of the pack. And he puts the blame on him. And that's where it should be. So we can see that God, even though Satan switched the order, God maintained it. Now, where else do we see this idea of um, what we call equal beings, yet a kind of a hierarchy? We find it in the Trinity. In the Godhead, there are three persons who are equal in value and personhood, and yet not equal in function and role. All of them have different functions in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, we need to back this up with our full hand here. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So there's a kind of a, a hierarchy. And if you go into Orthodox Christianity, they pronounce it more than we do. Uh, in Protestant and Catholic theology, the Trinity is kind of lateral like that. But in Orthodoxy, it's like that there. And we may have to learn a little bit from them because here it says uh, Christ, uh, Christ's head is God. And then in 1 Corinthians 15.28 it says, When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So for a perfect working of the Trinity, there is a kind of a hierarchy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So also in humanity, equal in value and, and, and in dignity and worth um, and personhood are man and woman, but different functions and different roles. Now, one of the arguments that some of the egalitarian camp uses to allow complete access to leadership and teaching for women is the belief that Eve's supporting role of Adam came about as a result of the fall and that that has been reversed at the cross. So basically they say Eve um, was a helper and a support to Adam because of the fall, but then Calvary reversed it all. But if we look into the scripture, we can see differently. When Eve sinned and Adam sinned, 
Eve was already a helper and a supporter to Adam. That was her previous role. But when she sinned, she became subservient to him. The way things were with sin, man began to dominate the woman. That's not the way God wants it. That's the way it happens to be now in many, many cases in unredeemed society. Man rules over a woman heavily and authoritatively and sometimes harshly and physically and that is not what God intended. It says here in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to your children and your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's not a good kind of a rule really. That's domineering. And uh, her role as childbearer and support to Adam remained constant through primary creation, then fall, and then redemption. Right now into this present age, woman is still a childbearer and still a support and still a husband, or a wife. But, but only if you're married, of course. And... Um, that role, that initial role, was good and God blessed it. But the role that, the way it was changed and warped and twisted after the fall is a terrible thing. So that in Australia today, there are two main focuses now, and they're both linked in many ways. The focus is on ICE, isn't it? And on domestic violence. Ken Lay has been involved in that, the uh, former chief constable. Isn't that what you call him? Commissioner. And... Um, they have discovered that you know, this fa- domestic violence is going up and up and up all the time. And that's because man has dominated and ruled over a woman wrongly. It's totally wrong that's going on. And so I'd just like to, um, at this point, mention another young man associated with our congregation who has been given a national award. And it is for working against violence in women. And he has to do it because of this fall thing and because of the way man does not rule correctly. So you can pray for Jesse as he has um, a lot of work to do in trying to get justice for a woman. Okay. The truly redeemed man does not treat his wife or any woman as subservient. Isn't that right? Let me hear an amen from that. Yeah. That is fall talk. It's not pre-fall talk. So what, how do we describe Eve's redeemed role and her pre-fall role? Well, the Bible describes it as a suitable helper. Now, what does that mean? I want to read Genesis 2.20 again. Genesis 2.20 goes like this. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. You remember there was just Adam and all the animals and none of them matched up for him. So the Lord caused Adam Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought it to her. He brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And you know, just to go into the Hebrew text a little bit and get the literal meaning of verse 18, it says this, really. 
Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone, or that a man should be alone. It says this, I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now, in our English, we'd say the for him is redundant. But here it is for emphasis. And it's almost like parenthesis. In the middle, we have a helper fit. And at one side, we have for him. And the other side, we have for him. So here, there is an emphasis on Eve being made for Adam as a complementary being, one that completes humanity. So we could almost make that word complementary, couldn't we? Complementary. When they come together, you have man. Without Eve, you don't have man. You don't have humanity. So they're exactly complementary. And uh, this is the, this complementary in view, complementarian view. In Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 11, we see in verse 9 how this is understood. It says, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, we could say, that sounds terrible in our modern understanding. For a, a 2015 secular person to hear that, they'd say that's absolute rubbish. It, wouldn't they? Because of the way understanding has shifted in, rela- in relation to men and women, they would say that's rubbish. But we can say that if we want to, but then we abandon the notion of the Word of God. This is the Bible. This is the Word of God. And the Creator, I believe, He knows best. He wrote it like that because He knows best. We, as mere 21st century mortals, don't know best. And this is uh, something that um, we need to take thought of. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Can a man gloat about that and think of himself higher than a woman because of that? No, absolutely not. Let's review the order. Genesis 2, 20-25. Eve's pre-fall role was to be a helper for him, fit for him. Then Eve's post-fall role, in other words, when sin came, was to be subservient to him and domineered by him. Now, we don't want that. We don't want that to remain. The, second, um, the third place is Eve's redeemed role. What happened at the cross? She once again had the potential to be a helper for him, uh, for him, a helper for him, fit for him. That's it. A helper for him, fit for him. So there we go. That's that's how we're we doing for time. We've got a little more time, and uh, it's running away. But this, as you can see, it's a it's a complex subject uh, and hard to fit into a short time like this. Verse eleven says, "We back to the text in." 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. A woman ought to learn in quietness and full submission. First thing, this is one of the first things in our text that's not easy to accept. This is harsh, it sounds, for this day and age. I myself have for a long time, even as a child, not wanted this to be as it is. I wanted it to be different. I grew up in a church where women were not allowed to pray at the Lord's table, uh, hardly allowed to pray anywhere um, or speak or anything like that. And yet I knew in the heart of the men there that they didn't mind listening to a woman now and again. But yet there, was some, there were some contradictions in the way, in their theory and in their practice. And uh, when women would pray in the church, I would get very excited about that. I thought it was really good and I think it is today too. I do think that 
that that should be. But um, what does this quietness and silence and full submission really mean? Because it's far opposed to what we understand in our society today. Are women to be completely silent in the congregation? Full stop, end of argument? Well, the answer to this is found in many passages. And first of all, we need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. And it says there, and I think we can be led to believe through this passage that women were actually praying in the congregation. It says there, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head just as though her head were shaved. So that's implying that women were actually praying in the congregation. And then in the Old Testament, we go way back there, we can see that women actually spoke in the congregation there too. And we find that in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 2 to 6, where Nehemiah was reading out the scriptures, or maybe Ezra it was. He read it aloud in the presence of the men and women, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen and Amen. So all the people, includes the women, and they were responding to the worship calls. I think it's interesting to note that the word for quietness there is um, a, a word in Greek called esuchia, and it can be translated and has been translated silence or quietness. And I don't know why in our verses they say silence one time and quietness the other when it's the same word in Greek. Because for me, silence and quietness are not the same exactly, are they? Silence is nothing, isn't it? But quietness allows, doesn't it, by its understanding, a little uh, sounds here and there and a certain order and uh, not too much noise. But silence is absolute. So I, ha- I just haven't understood why in our versions here they put silence once and quietness another time. I, I haven't got to the bottom of that. Anyway, um, John Piper helps us here with this. He says, but there, um, the, the word asukia refers to quiet life in verse 2. It also appears in verse 2 of that chapter where it says that we might live a quiet and peaceable life um, godly and respectable in every way. So when it's referring in chapter 2 to quietness, it's not referring at all to silence. It's referring to peaceful and peaceable and getting on with your life in a godly fashion. So why would that not also be the case in the later reference to the same word in verses 11? This gives you the tone and the extent of the word. It doesn't refer to absolute silence but rather a quiet and peaceful life, not lived in total silence. This is what John Piper's saying. It's a life untroubled and serene and content. So the silence doesn't seem to be total. It's more like what we would call quietness. So, wow, what do we do? What sort of quietness does Paul have in mind here in verse 11? Well, John Piper helps us once again. He says it's the kind of quietness that respects and honors the leadership of the men God has called to oversee the church. So, point here is it's not absolute wordlessness, but rather that the speech coming from their mouths does not compromise the God-given authority in the church. So, I'd like to look also. Um, we're not. Uh, we've got. We're running out of time. There's just so much to go. Can women teach? That's the question we have to answer. The question. Is I think we'll have to skip over a couple of slides there, guys, um, down to can women teach. The ability of women to teach is not in question. Everybody knows that women can teach. 
It's absolutely true. Men, have you learned anything from women? The answer is yes. Absolutely. And uh, you have learned from your mother. You've learned from your wife. And don't say you haven't. Um, I stand before you today and confess that I wouldn't be standing before you today and confessing uh, (laughs) that uh, I wouldn't be here unless it was for my wife Andrea and the things she prompted me to do and the push she gave me in the back and the things that she taught me even by her words and her actions and then of course there's my mother people like, you know, one of the biggest influences in my Bible study life was a lady called Kay Arthur. She taught me how to study the Bible. And then there's Corey Ten Boom. And there's an old missionary couple that we uh, succeeded in Brazil called Dory Gunning. And then there's my own daughters. They've taught me stuff. And then you ladies as well. You've taught me stuff. So can women teach? Yes, they do it all the time and they do it very well. And thank you. Thank you for all the things you have taught me. It's, uh, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for it. Put it that way. Um, so what kind of teachings are women free to carry out? Well, the Bible's clear in that as well. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 says, Older women teach younger women. That's completely open. 2 Timothy 3:14. Um, it tells the story of how Timothy came to faith. He came to faith through two women, his mother and grandmother. Paul speaks about it matter-of-factly. He doesn't condemn it. He rejoices in it. And then, of course, in Acts 18, verse 26, Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside, a woman and a man, man and woman team. They take Apollos aside and they teach him more correctly the things of God. But where did they do it? They did it in the privacy of their own home. And I think that seems to be key there. So what kind of teaching is not open to a woman? Well, it's the kind of teaching that relates to authority. And it's... And Paul forbids women to teach where that teaching is the exercise of authority over a man. I think this is the bottom line of the text. And we shouldn't go too far beyond what is written. Uh, We get into danger when we go beyond what is written. So the teaching, the word teaching in Pauline letters actually refers to body of truth in the prophets and in the words of Jesus and in the apostles. So what it's referring to here is that Paul is not allowing a woman to authoritatively download on men the doctrines of the church uh, in a corporate setting. I think that's what it really means. And to whom then has the authority been delegated? It's been delegated to the elders. And uh, the elders, um, later on in in Timothy chapter 3, we see the qualifications of the elders. And it's almost the same as the qualification of the deacons, but there are two differences. The first difference is that um, the elders govern and they teach, whereas the deacons don't do that. So that's why deacons is a position that's open to women. And we have in the scriptures women deacons as well. And if we look at the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, there, there are all in the um, masculine pronoun. Thirteen mentions of the masculine pronoun there. And there's one especially. He must be the husband of one wife. So I'm kind of rushing on through here to finish just so that the point isn't left hanging. Um, It does seem here that the entirety of ministry is open to women. 
in the church except two things. Leadership over the congregation in an authoritative sense and the teaching that is tied in with that leadership. And um, just in a, in a response to Dr. Craig Forbes, um, he uh, put most of his um, emphasis in his book on the narrative of Luke and Acts to put forward his uh, belief that women were open to all ministry. Um, and I had a, a look through. I, I appreciate that he spent years doing this and I did not spend that amount of time. But I could not find in Luke at all one single reference to women leading men in an authoritative way or teaching over them. I did find heaps of references to women serving the Lord faithfully. I found heaps of references to that first role that they were given, the role of helping and childbearing. There, strangely enough, in Luke, there are so many references to childbearing, uh, which is one of these themes that goes right through our talk today, but I haven't really been able to get to. Mary and Elizabeth, do you know that they actually wrote part of the scripture? Both have songs in the book of Luke uh, that are here. So, um, there we go. Um, I have to finish now, but I just want us to have a look at this from the complementarian point of view, as it's seen in Scripture, then weigh it over against the egalitarian view. Look, if you want to study this further, and I think you will, because what we did this morning is so little. I have books that you can look at from both sides, and you can decide for yourself. I don't want to be uh, laying down or domineering or in any way here today. I just wanted to put the complementarian view um, because it, if you're teaching through a book and you skip a passage, I think it lacks integrity. And um, there is a thing here about childbearing which we don't have time to go into today, but I, we'll touch on it the next time. But it's very mysterious and I can't pretend to say I understand it. So... <laughs> May the Lord help us. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Graham. Um, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. And please, you know what? There wasn't a lot of exhortation in this talk this morning. It was more like a lecture, wasn't it? So you go and do the exhortation, okay? Have you had a good story this week? Well, tell it to somebody. Um, I've had some good stories, and I'll probably tell them to some of you. But I want to get around you all. Everybody try to build each other up. Um, don't get into controversy um, unless you have to. And uh, really uh, bless each other. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.